Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, today's episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Over at Audible, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a wide variety of genres. And uh, it's a great way to listen to books if you're in your car on the way to work, if you've got your headphones on, you're on the subway, if uh, you're too lazy to pick up a book and read it you know, with your eyes in the traditional manner, you can have someone read it to you. It's kind of nice. Are you an insomniac? Maybe you can listen to an audio book in the middle of the night while your partner sleeps peacefully. Just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. That's audibletrial.com slash other people. Spell it out. Other and then P-E-O-P-L-E, the traditional way. Audibletrial.com slash other people. Get yourself a free audio book on the podcast. These are audio books, ladies and gentlemen. You can listen to them. Go and get some. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. All right, right, everybody. Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is invisible to the naked eye. This is an accident not waiting to happen. How are you? Do you like that dramatic pause? I'm Brad Listy. I'm here in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. It's good to be in your headspace. My guest today is Leslie Jameson. I'm very excited about this. Uh, she has a new book out. It's a book of essays available now from Gray Wolf Press. It is called The Empathy Exams. Perhaps you've heard of it. Uh, it's been getting a lot of press. It's been generating a lot of buzz. And uh, Leslie and I are going to be talking in just a little bit. Uh, I got a lot of mail from listeners regarding uh, uh, this past Sunday's episode, number 274, I believe, with Kathleen Rooney. It generated a response, particularly uh, the monologue. <laughs> uh, I guess I got a little dark in the monologue. I don't know what to tell you. Was I trying to be dark? Yeah, I was trying to be honest, but I was also trying to be funny. Trying to thread that particular needle. Uh, I worry sometimes. I have crises of confidence sometimes. I'm human. I'm hoping it's not that big of a deal. These things, they come and go in life. 
like storm clouds. You know, I'm aware of this. And I, in, uh, frankly, I was aware of it when I recorded the monologue. What uh, I think I was trying to do and what I'm trying to do generally uh, with this program and with the monologues in particular is to uh, externalize internal thought processes that might otherwise uh, tend to remain subterranean, if that makes sense. So here's uh, one of the emails in question that I received after uh, this past episode. Uh, it comes from a listener named Joey, who uh, is writing to me to voice his concern. And uh, the subject heading reads, Cheer up, Brad, if you can. <laughs> uh, hey, Brad, he writes, I just listened to the May 4th episode with Kathleen Rooney, where you expressed your fears about the podcast and your worries about money and the worth of the podcast. I can't give any advice about money. I'm a 20-year-old Bennington College student attempting to be a writer. I don't know shit about making money, but I can tell you about the worth of this thing you've created. Your podcast helps me get through my days out here in the middle of nowhere, Vermont. There's not a lot of inspiration around these parts. We've got a Walmart, a Price Chopper, a Hannaford supermarket. We've got a lot of supermarkets, but that's about it. And, and uh, just to interrupt, is this too much piano, uh, sad piano music? <laughs> I don't want to overdo it, but I feel like it kind of adds something. So uh, Joey continues, your podcast helps me when I'm facing the blank page. It gives me a little kick. It gets me going. And as someone who gets pretty moody out here, pretty down, I find a little bit of solace knowing that every Wednesday and Sunday, there will be a new other people. It's a comforting thing. You've got to keep it up. On a final note, my entire family listens to the show. Mom, dad, sister, even my dog. And we all do our best to spread the word. In fact, I just emailed one of my writing professors about the show. Uh, anyway, this email has become a bit unorganized, a bit jumbled, so I'll end it by saying that Brad cheer up if you can <laughs> you're having a pretty powerful effect on strangers around the country and the world we need you thanks Joey so thank you Joey sincerely uh, I really appreciate that and uh, you know you guys know how it is most of you listening out there uh, I have to believe like the majority of you are writers or uh, artists of some kind. And uh, when you work creatively, then you tend to work in something of a void. At least in the beginning. Or, or I should say, to be more accurate, like something of a narrow channel. A very crowded, in, in, the, in the context of literature, a very crowded, narrow channel. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's a, there are struggles involved. The struggle over, you know, why to do it trying to make sure that that why is kept pure. It's about you. It's about the joy that you derive from doing the work. It's about the doing and not the outcome. Even though it's so hard not to think about the outcome and it's so hard not to do the thing without keeping other people in mind. The audience, the critics, your family, whatever it is. You know, you got to clear your head of all that. It can get hard sometimes. And then there's the struggle over, you know, is it connecting? Am I actually any good at this? Does this matter? Am I wasting my time? Not to mention the whole struggle over how to make a living at it, whatever it happens to be. The struggle is real. 
is it not? Let's all say it together. Uh, or actually, let's not do that. <laughs> let's never do that. Uh, my point is that I was just trying to give uh, voice to that stuff. I was trying to express it. And the truth is, uh, I really do like hearing nice things from listeners. Of course I do. I appreciate it. It keeps me going. And uh, when people support the show and they sign up for premium and whatnot, that keeps me going. It gives me uh, a boost. It makes me feel like, okay, this is, uh, this, is, uh, this is working for people. I should keep doing this. So I hope that explains it. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My guest today is Leslie Jameson. Her new collection of essays entitled The Empathy Exams is now available from Grey Wolf Press. It is a great pleasure to have her here on the program and uh, to get a chance to talk with her a little bit. So here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Leslie Jameson, and her new book, once again, is called The Empathy Exams. I am in my apartment in Brooklyn. I'm sitting in my living room next to my Himalayan salt lamp. It's raining outside. It's cozy in here. That's where I'm at. Okay. Uh, your book is getting an incredible reception, especially for a collection of essays. And I don't mean to like qualify it because I love essay collections, but it is a hard thing to publish and to get this kind of... Uh, reception i feel like do you like do you see it similarly yeah well you know i i agree that i both love essay collections and i see the ways that wonderful essay collections totally go under the radar all the time so yeah i've been surprised overwhelmed really delighted by the kind of nerve that the book has struck um i you know i think I mean, it's my second book, and I think one of the things I learned from publishing my novel four years ago was that you just can't, the more expectations you have, the more you just set yourself up for 
pain and disappointment. You kind of have to try to just be happy about what does happen and not dismayed about what doesn't happen. I mean, that's easier said than done, but um, I think that that in general is kind of a strategy for not going totally crazy as a writer. Okay. Okay. I get that. But like, what about things that you've done? Have you done anything explicitly on this book that maybe you didn't do on your first book or that you learned from other people or that, you know, was there anything that you did to make this happen, to make this reception happen? Yeah. I mean, I think, well, there's certainly things that I've done differently. I don't know. I don't know how much they each affected how well the book has done, but some things that I planned really differently this time around, like I planned my reading tour in a completely different way. Like almost all of the events that I did in April for this book were events like either they were part of reading series or um, events that I set up with other people, like other authors, or I did one event with a psychologist at Yale, another event with a doctor up in Boston. So every, like I wasn't doing the kind of solo bookstore in like, you know, Newport Beach where there were like four people there and one of them was my mom. Like, I feel like I kind of learned that the, the old style book tour doesn't work anymore, especially if you're not starting with some kind of name recognition. So I just designed this tour with like this sense of how can I make each event a little bit different? How can I bring in other voices with people I would actually enjoy talking to? It keeps it more interesting for me. So I think that that, that was a way. And also if I'm doing a reading in an arbor, like, and I read with my friends who's been living in Ann Arbor for five years and everybody loves her there. Like, it's going to be easier for me to get a good turnout at that event than if I just show up in Ann Arbor and I'm, like, asking for love, you know? So right. I think that that felt really different to me. Um, I mean, I have to say, like, Grey Wolf deserves a lot of credit for what they did with this book. And especially um, the marketing guy that I was working with at Grey Wolf, Michael Packins, is... Sure, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, maybe you know him. He's phenomenal at what he does. Um, with books that he feels passionately about, he takes them to the indie bookseller community in this really powerful way. And I really think that's where the groundswell started for this book was he got booksellers excited about it starting in like January. And um, that's really been building ever since. And that was a big part of, I think, how the book got a lot of buzz on social media in the last three months, even even before it came out. Um, so I, that, that to me seemed like I hadn't even known how important booksellers could be in kind of getting a, giving a book some startup momentum. Right. Well, you know, it's like it's this is endlessly fascinating to me, like how book how certain books launch. And I feel like your book is launching. And, you know, having an advocate within the publishing house is obviously critical. And I feel like, you know, I have a limited un uh, understanding of what goes on inside the walls of a publishing house, but I do have some idea. And I know that generally speaking, people are stretched thin and they tend to be overburdened. They have a lot of books to deal with and a lot of authors to deal with. And inevitably, certain books generate more passion than others. And publishing houses have to make strategic decisions about resources and stuff like that. And it sounds like uh, your book incited positive energy within the house, and that so it starts there. I mean, it won the Gray Wolf Award, so they got to put something behind it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? yeah, I think part of it. I mean, I think part of it was yeah. I mean, Gray Wolf, Gray Wolf did feel really passionate about the book. I mean, I also think Gray Wolf is able to put a lot behind all of their books in a way that I don't. Bigger houses, I think you're going to see 
a larger gap between the books that are getting really privileged and pushed and the books that aren't. Like, I feel like there's a huge just class hierarchy in, in big New York houses. And I think Grey Wolf is able to, you know, they're smaller, but they also have a smaller catalog and they're a more intimate community. So I think that they're really able to um, stand behind everything they do um, because pretty much everybody I know who publishes Grey Wolf has had, not everybody's had the same experience, but everybody's really had a positive experience. So I definitely felt like, you know, we would call it like there would be emails going around at certain junctures in the publishing process. So it just, they just started signing off like team empathy. You know what I mean? And I feel like that's the vibe. That's like the Grey Wolf vibe is like, we're on a team, like we're getting this done together. Like, where, you know, once the book got momentum, then obviously momentum begets more momentum and it becomes this kind of cycle. But I really felt that from the start, like that I was in good hands and in really humane hands where I wasn't uh, just a, I don't know, a kind of anonymous possible lottery ticket. Well, you <laughs> I know, was it, like a human being, you know? It, so. Yeah, well, that's the thing, though. And like this is, I mean, just stick with me here because I, act, I think I might actually have a point to make. Like, uh, your book is about empathy. It, you know, that's its it's its concern, human pain, how we relate to one another, how we um, address the suffering of others and how we address our own suffering and, and so on and so forth. Um, and so, you know, this book maybe might uh, generate a heightened uh, interest in the people who come into contact with it to uh, help the cause or something. And then... And then let me just let me just uh, give a, a parallel narrative uh, because I've, I, this story will never leave me. I think it's such an ingenious moment, um, and that I always remember it. But there was a guy that I had on this uh, podcast, and I always blank. This is horrible of me, but it's an author that I interviewed. Um, I, I'll say it in the monologue, I'm sure. But uh, he went and he was pitching in Hollywood, and he was on a plane from San Francisco to. Uh, to uh, Los Angeles, his agent was like, I want you to come down and take some meetings for, you know, with the uh, movie people. If you have any pitches, you know, please have them ready so you can tell them about your ideas. And he had nothing. And so, uh, you know, he gets off the plane. He's on the plane. He's thinking of ideas. He comes up with a pitch for a movie called Yes Man, which is like a wish fulfillment comedy about a guy who gets cursed and can't say anything but yes to everything. Yeah. And then he, go- he goes in and pitches these people. And so what do you think they're going <laughs> to say? They bought the, they bought the pitch right there. They like got the boss on the, the speakerphone and like he pitched the <laughs> boss. I mean, but it's ingenious because psychologically it works. And I'm not saying that you preconceive this with empathy. I'm just saying that sometimes maybe it's working at some sort of like uh, subterranean level and making people behave in a certain way. Yeah. I mean, I love that. I love that theory. And I really, and it does, resonate with my experience of how this book has been received. I mean, I think that this book strikes a chord in a lot of people that makes them not only read it and enjoy it, but want to help the cause and also kind of want to spread it. Like, I feel like it's um, like when people talk about the spread of internet memes, right, they talk about articles or headlines that get a lot of clicks versus the kind of articles and headlines that get a lot of shares. And it's not always the same. Like, right. I mean, and some stuff is like porn gets like fewer shares, you know, but it even I think it can be subtler than that, where it has to do with some things you just want to consume yourself. And then other things you have this urge to send to your half aunt and your 
stepson and, you know, everybody you've ever met. And I, I do think that this book is one where one thing that makes me really happy at readings and signings is a lot of people buy multiple copies of the book at once. And there's a sense that they're sort of like, oh, I'm going to get one for me, but then this one's for my brother and this one's for my doctor and this one's for... And so I think it is that there's a kind of propagating feed or fuel in the subject matter of the book that makes people want to spread it or... That's when I've gotten that sense. It makes me really happy when I detect that. Well, sure. And did and you and when when did you start to notice that and even like consider that might be a possibility for this book? Like, was it something that you were thinking as you were writing, or as the book was coming together, or was it something that you, you started to realize at these readings and you know meeting readers and stuff? Um, I think it definitely wasn't something that was going through my head as I was crafting the book, with the possible exception of the final essay in the book grand unified theory of female pain where I was trying to articulate this sense I had that women were sometimes ashamed to talk about their experiences of pain or society was sort of sending messages to women that they shouldn't be talking about their pain. And with that, I, I crowdsourced that essay. So I asked a lot of my friends what they thought about that issue. And I could tell from them result that I got, I mean, maybe it just says something about the kind of people I hang out with and how how I hang out with people who are like me, but um, I did feel like I was hitting some kind of nerve with that piece because a lot of my friends had strong reactions to my prompts and lots of stuff to say. And that has been, that happened, you know, a few years ago when I was writing the piece, but I felt that echoed on this huge scale now that the piece has been published where like all of these random women that I've never met send me notes saying this piece resonated so much. So with that piece, I feel like in the composition process, I got this foretaste of how I was taking the pulse of some kind of cultural energy that was much bigger than me and that was felt by a lot of other people. Um, That's nice. I mean, yeah. And like, do you feel like, I don't know, I guess it's, it's hard to kind of, I feel like some people just have a good antenna for that kind of thing. You know, like they, they're, they somehow find a way to channel into those energies and to, have an awareness, which I guess has something to do with emergent, uh, like immersion in cultural concerns, and also w- w- with regard to just like innate talent or instinct or something. But is that something you consciously try to um, cultivate? I, I mean, mainly I really follow what I'm interested in because I feel like that's what I'm going to have the best stuff to say about, and then hopefully what I'm interested in is something that at least some subset of other people is interested in. But I really, that's how I, it's less that I try to intuit what would have a mass interest or appeal and more that I think I need to follow what does it for me because that's what's going to be exciting for somebody else to read. And, I, you know, that's even, that's even true on the level of, you know, a lot of these pieces were published in other places before they came out in the collection, but... That process wasn't always an easy one. And there were pieces like the, you know, the piece I read about Morgellons disease. When I first heard about Morgellons disease, which is controversial skin illness where people report strange fibers coming out of their skin. Like when I first heard about that, I thought who wouldn't be interested in people saying they have weird shit coming out of their bodies? Like how could that not be interesting to somebody? But I I pitched that piece to so many different magazines. They were like, oh, like, one place said, we do too many weird conference pieces because I was going to go to this disease conference. And I couldn't, I, I was so stunned that this thing that felt almost like it sold itself 
really didn't seem to have any takers. And so with that piece, I just had to write it. Like I just had to get on a plane to Austin, go to this Mark Ellen's conference, try to take down everything I saw and then just, you know, write the piece. Um, so I think with stuff like that, it's like, even when I was getting very little feedback from the world, that this was potentially something other people might be interested in. I just had to trust that whatever I saw in it, was something that I could develop and illuminate and bring to other people in a way that would then make them interested in it too. Yeah. I mean, that's the task because I, I totally get what you're saying. Like the personal, it's always better to go deeply personal than to try to say something grand and universal that never works out. And the irony is that I think you wind up like striking, um, at universal themes by going into the deeply personal, like what really interests you or whatever is bothering you or whatever it is, you know? Um, but I think that some writers, I guess the trick is, is to express these things in a way that, uh, gets at people and feels accessible and resonant. Not everybody can do that. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, the other thing is that I, I think, yeah, some of it is going deeply into the personal. And like you say, a lot of it is just following, trusting that, whatever good work you're going to do, it's going to come from you following your gut impulses rather than trying to surmise what the gut interests are of other people. Because I feel like if I had say followed common wisdom, market wisdom on what kind of nonfiction book about pain and empathy was going to sell well, like it wouldn't be this book. It would be, I mean, I was basically told you know, if you really want to do this in a marketable way, you've got to write memoir, like straight memoir, like linked autobiographical essays or book length memoir. Like you can't be doing this like part criticism, part reportage, a little bit of you, but a little bit of everything else. Like that's, that's not as, there's not a category for that in the same way that just straight up memoir is a category. So in a way, like. And you ignored that. You clearly ignored that advice. Well, totally, because the whole point of the book for me was about looking inward and outward in the same collection. Like, that that was the point of the book. So to kind of get rid of the stuff that was reported or critical, critical in the sense of, like, looking at books and films and stuff outside myself, like, to get rid of that would have gotten rid of the core essence of the piece, which was all about being like, okay, these things have happened to me and I'm going to narrate some of those things, but I want to juxtapose those things that have happened to me alongside all this shit that's happened to other people. Well, and it's like, if you're writing about empathy and you're not looking outward, it's a little bit, right. it's a little bit crazy, but I also find, and I just had this conversation with uh, Justin Hawking, uh, Justin Hawking, who wrote a memoir, which is, you know, it's, it's braided narratives and there's a lot of outward looking along with yep. the kind of uh, inward looking or, you know, it, I, navel gazing seems like it's pejorative, but you know what I'm saying? Like I, I write, in, yep. I write in this mode too. I call it navel gazing. Even, you know, even when it's at its best, you sort of feel a little bit silly about, you know, mucking around in your own stuff and then trying to like <laughs> present it to the world, or at least I do. And, uh, you know, but I feel like if you have a balance between the two, it almost feels appropriate to me. And I, and maybe it's just kind of like, you know, makes me feel better about sharing my own stuff. If I also dig into the stuff of others and like try to look outward as opposed to just being completely self-obsessed. 
Yeah, absolutely. What it and so some of what Justin I I know about his book, but I haven't read it yet. So so some he's writing his memoir with his relationship with Moby Dick and what 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 other kinds of stuff is making its way in there for him? Oh, I mean, it's like it's all sorts of stuff. It's I mean, it's not this. It's not too dissimilar from yours. I mean, there's like literary um, preoccupations, relationship stuff. Um, you know, the people that he meets in his men's group, you know, he, he just, mm-hmm. he's turning outward. And, um, I don't know. I, I find myself drawn to that. It just seems natural. And I, I guess there's mm-hmm. also a place for like straight confessional memoir that's really focused on one particular slice of a person's life or one particular thread. Um, but I don't know. That's just not the way I live my life. I don't think it's the way most writers or most people live. You're, you're, I'm constantly oscillating between, um, you know, staring into my own navel <laughs> and, and, and then like, you know, being on the internet, jumping around or reading a book and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. coming into contact with all these other different narratives, many of which, and this is part of the fun of it, I think, is that you start to recognize these commonalities, these, you know, these common thematic, uh, threads. And then I, I love the, the braiding process because those are, those are, those are often surprising moments. And I know, um, having read, you know, um, interviews and, and, and stuff that you've done that, you know, these kinds of surprising moments in the composition process are sort of, uh, that's the best stuff when it comes to essay. Uh, it is the best stuff. It is the best stuff. And I think that the flip side or the corollary to what you're saying is also true in the same way that it's organic for confessional writing to look outward or to bump up against other stuff. I think for me, at least it's so organic for, writing that's looking outward like criticism to end up coming back to the personal. Like that's, that's the most natural form of criticism for me in a sense is criticism that acknowledges that when I'm reading this book by James Agee or when I'm watching this documentary about the West Memphis three or whenever I, when I'm watching intervention compulsive with my computer in the middle of the day, like here are the, here are the parts of, myself or my life that are kind of rising up to meet this other entity. Like it's, it's more aggressive to kind of keep that stuff out than to let it in. Right. right? I completely agree. I completely agree. It's like, like when the the critic tries to be like, um, is omniscient the right word or like at a remove from the, from the the thing that he or she is criticizing. Like I always want to know. And I think, you know, I, I, I've said this so many times in the show, but like, it's a big part of the reason why I started doing this in the first place is that, uh, you know, I read the book and then I'm also like, okay, so who's, who is this person? What's going on with them? And I can't resist, um, wanting to know. And like one, I guess I can't resist asking those questions. And like in the same context, you're reading a, a piece of criticism and you are reading all of these strong feelings, be they positive, you know, positive or negative by the critic. And then you're like, okay, so why? You know, like, what's your thing? Right. How, how come this? How come this provoked you, uh, one way or the other? And I'm I'm always relieved when the answers are given. You know, at least to some extent. Right, 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 right. Yeah, it's very. I think it's a very intoxicating kind of. Earlier, you were talking about subterranean forces. I think it's really intoxicating when you get a sense of what is motivating a critic's attachment to a given object that they're examining or their repulsion or whatever, when you sort of get that sense of the curtain is parted and you see some beating heart that starts to explain where the, where the critical impulse is coming from. I, I, I love that. It feels like, of feels like, and I feel like there's more dignity or, or more like, 
humanity or something in that approach. I think, I don't know. I always, I like to feel that connection. And I feel like, um, if you're the critic and you're going to be saying these things, uh, especially if it's, you know, not necessarily complimentary, then it seems like the right thing to do to expose yourself a little bit as to why. Yeah. It's funny. I, I used to have a lot of trouble, psychological trouble with writing negative book reviews. And I used to write quite a few reviews for the San Francisco Chronicle and I had maybe 850 words a pop there. And, um, and I really, I, I enjoyed my editor there a lot. I respected him a lot. I, I, but I did sometimes have trouble when I was writing about books I didn't like because I felt in a, in 850 words, like I was trying to do an impossible task. Like I was trying to articulate what I thought was failing about a given book. Uh, I was also trying to acknowledge the fact that writing any book is a significant amount of labor and effort. And I respect that labor and effort. I was trying to kind of connect what was wrong with the book to a larger point in a way that justified why I was calling the book out, you know, so that I wasn't just like picking apart little things that were wrong for the sake of picking apart. But I was actually trying to say something useful about what books should do by pointing out what this book wasn't doing. Right. But it's like, at some point you're already at like, 8,000 words. <laughs> that's your, that's your next, it's your next book. It's your next book. Yeah. Uh-oh. But what made me think of it was if I could, I would want to also kind of append like my own experience of trying to write the negative review to sort of explain like, here were all the different, here were the moments that I desperately wanted to like make brunch for the author that I was criticizing, even as <laughs> I was criticizing her, you know, cause it is, it's an intimate, it's kind of an intimate process. The, the takedown is a little bit of an intimate process, or I found I experienced it. Probably the people I took down didn't think it was very intimate at all, but for <laughs> me, there was something that felt really involved about it, or I wanted it to feel involved. Yeah, I mean, I find myself wanting to like. I, I like. I didn't realize this until recently. I've been writing essays more often recently, and I've been doing a lot of footnoting. And it's like, uh, I guess that's just the way my mind works. It sounds like maybe your mind works somewhat similarly. Uh, you know, and I know it's like the big David Foster Wallace thing, but the kind of discursive, like correcting the record as you're making the record, you know, like, yep. it's, yeah. so, it's so yeah. hard yeah. to resist because it's just like, well, wait a minute, I need to say this too, but it doesn't fit here. And I need to make sure that people know that I understand that I don't know that, you know, it, it gets very unwieldy and, um, but it's also sort of fun. Uh, and I also, um, just to completely intrude upon the conversation, want to correct the record and say that the author whose name I forgot earlier, I just, for some reason remembered it's Noah Hawley. So I apologies to Noah for blanking on his name moment, you know, uh-huh. minutes ago. Well, like he's here. He's here with us now. <laughs> I, just, <so. laughs> I hate when I do that. I feel like an asshole. I, you know, I talked to the guy and I didn't, I just blanked. I think I put myself on the spot. So, um, I want to talk about empathy, uh, you know, how you arrived at this particular fixation. Uh, you know, it's one of those things, like I know everybody sort of, everybody listening sort of understands what empathy is in context. But uh, I often find that words that are very commonly used or concepts that everybody should um, should know, uh, you know, sometimes when you dig a little further and you actually flip them over and start to look at them, uh, are a lot, you know, you, you realize you didn't really know exactly what it meant or that there's a lot more complexity to it than you were initially thought. So uh, empathy, like, <laughs> what is it? Yeah, well, what's great about how you just phrased that question is – you were you were kind of answering the question as you asked it because that is actually a huge part of 
what became compelling about thinking about empathy for me was the fact that it was such a ubiquitous word. Like you hear it everywhere. It's a very familiar concept and a very familiar good. Like we sort of get it. Empathy is a good thing. We want empathy. Well, especially right, right. I was going to say, especially in the context of literature, there's like this, it's like this kind of self-congratulatory thing where it's like, you know, I write books because books bridge the gap between consciousness, you know, consciousnesses and (laughs) help make people feel, you know, and, and, you know, there's some truth to that, but it's also, it can also be sort of like a pat on the back to oneself. Totally, totally. I feel both sides of it. I mean, I do, I, I deeply believe in the ways that books do broaden our understanding of other lives, but I also believe in interrogating what that means. What does it mean when we feel sad for somebody who doesn't exist? Like, why does that sadness have any value at all? Like, why should we feel good about well, as writers creating that sadness or as readers feeling that sadness or, or even, you know, any kind of affective charge? Like, I, I, that's part of what makes me want to write is having intense emotional experiences as a reader and feeling like I've been granted the opportunity to enter other lives as a reader like that. I, I just believe in that stuff, but I also don't want to just take it for granted that those transactions are valuable. Like I really want to break them open and think about how they work and what they lack and all that stuff too. Um, I I was just going to say, I'm paraphrasing something that you, uh, you know, that you said, but it, it was like, you know, is like you were questioning empathy and your own assessment of it or understanding of it. And you're like, is it just uh, self-pity like projected? Like it's a, it's like a form of self-pity projected onto the suffering of somebody else or do you know what I'm saying? Like I, I can find myself asking that question. I also uh, can sometimes find myself questioning um, my empathic impulse uh, in, in the context of understanding that, uh, you know, or having read that, you know, if you feel compassion, right, this is another common like uh, pop, science or pop medical wisdom that if you feel compassion for another person, it's actually good for you. It's actually uh, health giving. It improves your mental and emotional and like psycho spiritual health. So obviously you would want more of that, which then, um, inserts like, uh, self-interest into the equation. <laughs> so right, like you start, right, you right. start, you start to feel empathy for somebody because you're like, yeah, this is good for me. You know? And right, it, it starts, right, to, it right. starts to become a tangle or it's like, I'm feeling bad about my own impending death or my mortality. And then somebody, somebody, right. somebody gets diagnosed with a terminal illness and you feel so sorry for them, but really you're just, are you just feeling sorry for yourself? Like, have you come to any conclusions about this stuff? Well, yeah, I'm not really a conclusion prone writer (laughs) is is one thing I should say. But I do, yeah, first of all, I'm totally vibing everything you're saying. Like it really accords with my sense of the messy way that empathy works. That, you know, what you were saying earlier about back padding, I think that's really operative. There's that um, Milan Kundera quote that shows up in um, my essay on sentimentality. That's like when we watch young children playing in the grass, we cry two tears. One tear is a tear of joy for the beauty of young children playing in the grass. And then the second tear is a tear of joy for our own capacity 
to cry that first tear of joy at the sight of children, you know, playing then, in the grass. And so there's, I have a third tear, and mine's like that. My child, yeah. my childhood is gone. <laughs> like, yes, yeah, the third know, tear. Yeah, I can come up with more <laughs> if you want. We could sit here all day. That's, <laughs> that's going to be my next book, the third tear. <laughs> so Leslie Jameson pushes it even further, and we can we'll co-write it. <laughs> oh my god. But, yeah, but I think I, mean, I guess what I would what I would add to what you were saying earlier is I think that the possibility of these kind of tangled motivations or the entry of self-interest, the way that some of what we feel towards other people is actually something we're feeling towards ourselves. Like I don't think that that completely degrades what empathy is or means that it's just kind of false or hollow. Like to me it's more just proving what we shouldn't even need to prove to ourselves because it's been proved so many times, but just that every human impulse is this polluted mixture of a lot of different things that no, that no impulse is a single strand that when you feel sadness for somebody else, that sadness is about them in a genuine way, but it's also probably, yeah, about a lot of stuff in your own life and how that stuff is getting activated. But like, I think that what we can do is try to acknowledge those different strands, but rather than thinking like some kind of one drop rule where it's like, well, if there's a little bit of self-interest in it, then the whole thing is fucked. You know, right, like right. I, I, I don't, I don't think it works that way either. Well, no. Yeah. And it's like, I, I totally get what you're saying too. Cause it's like, it just goes back to the whole thing of, uh, you know, interbeing or you know, nothing can exist by itself. So there's just no, there's no single strand. There's nothing like that in life. And I I can get frustrated sometimes, especially when it comes to something like empathy. Like sometimes you just want a simple equation. Like it's just good. I just feel this. I'm feeling good, you know, things and I want good things for people. And then all of a sudden, you know, uh, my mind will go off on a different vector and and, and I can find myself complicating it. And and that can become frustrating. But, you know, I guess you just have to accept that as uh, reality and not and try to not get too frustrated with it. One thing that has been helpful for me or that I have been thinking about more in relation to empathy is thinking about empathy in terms of actions rather than just thoughts or feelings. And I think that can, so actions being things like placing yourself in proximity to other people, asking questions, listening to answers, like that those can facilitate empathy. And you can kind of turn to those actions no matter what you're thought processes are so that if you get kind of caught in that loop of hyper self-consciousness or questioning your own authenticity or motivation, I don't know know what you're talking about. I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) Now we'll just take like a moment of silence and just both go deep into our own (laughs) private versions of that loop. Um, But I think that, you know, there can be something actually really saving about focusing on concrete, discrete actions as a kind of antidote to that. And I think that's part of where the, you know, the whole idea of empathy training in the medical field or other fields does rely on this sense that focusing on certain actions can start to catalyze or produce interior states of empathy as well. Yeah, I like the old, like, I sometimes I'll just say to myself, like, we are what we do. Like, get out of your head. Yeah. We are what we do. Yep. Ultimately. Yep, yep, yep. Take it till you make it. Yeah, there are a lot of ways of kind of accessing that. 
So, okay. I feel like that, that's a nice, like, like, uh, I feel like we've arrived at, uh, arrived at some sort of like reasonable conclusion. We've gone through all that and now we've we settled the empathy stuff. <laughs> I never have to talk about it again. Never going to talk about empathy again. Well, okay. <laughs> and uh, let's talk about how much you've been talking about it because usually I, I, I make a concern. I mean, I should say first that not all authors that I speak with on this program have had nearly the kind have generated nearly the kind of media interest that you seem to have been generating recently. Um, I'm, I'm a nerd about this because this is part of what I do. So I pay attention, but I know that you've been doing a lot of interviews and I always try to get at people, especially when I have a sense that there's like a, a drumbeat building for a book. I always like to get in early because I don't want to catch somebody who's burned out talking about the same thing over and over again. Like, do you find yourself like, oh God, empathy? <laughs> you know, like, if I have to talk about well, empathy, <laughs> I, you know, I mean, I empathy has acquired a strange sound in my mind as a word, in the same way that your name has a strange not not your name, oh, it's Brad. A, it's a, so it, weird. It's a, I know. I have a terrible. I have. A, I, I, you probably don't know this about me, but I do have a complicated relationship with my first name. So. Well, I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to activate a wound. I just mean I actually have a complicated relationship with my first name too. But the, your name is, you know, it, it goes a little numb because you, it's yours and you've heard it so many times. I feel like I'm starting to, or if you say any word like ten times in a row, it sounds weird. Yeah. I feel that way all the time about empathy, and it's just become such a big part of my life in this way that I wouldn't have expected. So I do feel a little bit of that burnout, and it's interesting because I. In terms of media stuff that I've done, sometimes I do things where I'm speaking very much as a writer and people are interested in nerding out on craft questions and how did you put these essays together and how do you mix memoir and journalism and those kinds of things. But then sometimes, like certain radio appearances and stuff that I've done is much more like, what's empathy? Let's talk about empathy. And then I feel like I'm kind of being asked to moonlight as an empathy expert, when really I'm not an empathy expert, I'm an essay writer who has written essays that explore empathy. It's like, I, but I feel like sometimes I'm called in as like a special witness for the defense or something like that. who's <laughs> weighing in on, on what empathy is. And that does make me uh, feel a little bit, I don't know whether I want to comfortable, maybe challenged. Yeah. And in particular, like I'm, thinking about, like, uh, I went to one of the events that they had done recently that was really compelling to me was, and also challenging for me, was I went to speak to a group of mental health care providers in Waterford, Connecticut, and um, you know, social workers and therapists and with the people that we cross the street to avoid, you know what I mean? They work with the people who won't shut up on the subway. They work with, I mean, they work with people who have really been marginalized, mistreated, misunderstood. And they got in touch with me and said, will you come talk to us about empathy? And I was like, Hi, you need to talk to me about empathy. You know what right, I mean? Like, right. I don't, you're the doctor. I mean, you guys, <laughs> like you guys are working. You're in the trenches all day thinking about these issues in practice. And so in a moment like that, I just have to step back and be like, it's an honor that you're being asked. All you can do is share with them what you thought, what your process was like, what kind of questions you asked yourself, and then ask them to talk to you. I mean, just, just this idea that you can sort of be part of a conversation without having to claim that you're some special 
expert. Like if I can readjust my posture in that sense, it helps me speak about empathy in a way that doesn't make me feel like a fraud and in a way that doesn't make me feel totally burned out. Right. Um, well, you just, yeah. you've done some really good deep thinking about it. If you have, I mean, you like, not to say that you've come up with a full diagnosis, but I, I always like, uh, you know, one of the metaphors I always use for writing is that like, it's diagnosis, not cure. Like you don't have to come up with the cure. Uh, or like, right. like the, the final answer to like the problem or the issue of empathy. But um, you are trying to like, you know, diagnose the situation and see what's going on. And maybe you get um, a big part of it or some chunk of it. And, uh, you know, people are clearly responding to that. But I, I, I can totally understand feeling overwhelmed when suddenly you're like encircled by a team of doctors. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, it's funny because I think that with these, so most of the people in Waterbury were, yeah, social workers or therapists, and we basically ended up having kind of a, I don't want to say kumbaya session because that makes, that's, I don't mean that in a pejorative way. What I mean is we did end up really having a conversation where therapists were sharing their experiences of, you know, how tentative you have to be when you're accessing somebody's pain or how much time it can take to build the trust that is necessary to access somebody's pain. Like, I, I did feel like we were all speaking together in certain ways. There are a couple of events that I'm doing in the fall where I am like going to speak to doctors and I don't, I really am going to have to put on my <laughs> confidence hat for those. I think because I do, I, you know, I think doctors have a really rigorous way of thinking about things and a much more kind of quantitative way of thinking about things and just speak a different language than the language that I speak. And I have to trust that, they invited me because they want to hear me speak not my language, not because they want to hear me do my best weird subpar approximation of their language. So. Right, right, yeah. Well, I think, that, and I think there's always something to be gained when you have, um, you know, people coming together around a single issue, and like you might have like you know the the scientific or doctorly people on one side, and then somebody who's taken a more uh, artistic, intuitive. You know what I'm saying, you know, and then I think, yeah, I, think yeah. there, I think there's something to be learned on both sides. I imagine it'll probably it'll probably be a good dialogue. Um, yeah. I, I also yeah. I want to ask you as well, like with respect, you know, with regard to the way that this book has been received and with regard to the critical reception, which has been, um, you know, uh, positive, largely positive, And you've gotten a lot of uh, you got a lot of good blurbs. You got a, uh, a lot of really flattering comparisons in these uh, glowing reviews. You know, Susan Sontag, Joan Didion, uh, John Jeremiah Sullivan. I've been seeing these names, and uh, that tends to augur well for a writer, uh, not only as a writer of books, but I'm also wondering uh, in a journalistic capacity. Like, have you been getting offers to write for big glossy magazines or anything as a result of this book? I have gotten approached by magazines. I mean, there are a lot of magazines that I was in touch with in the months leading up to the book as well. I mean, I think that I was sort of rooted in, in certain corners of the magazine world even before the book came out. Um, you know, I mean, people, <laughs> my mom is, you know, convinced that I'm going to, you know, get a job at the New Yorker, that they're going to come begging me to write for them. I haven't heard from them. They haven't offered me a job yet, but uh, I do, I, you know, there, I do feel, I have gotten a lot of invitations to speak and to teach and, um, and those are, those are an honor. I was, I, I was feeling 
in my heart a pang when you were talking about the yes man movie right. uh, treatment um, because I I am kind of a yes woman temperamentally like I don't like disappointing people I like saying I like being on board with an idea I like being a yay sayer and I've actually really had to think about how to say no and how to draw boundaries because especially and this gets back to what you were saying earlier about the particular kind of response that this book might evoke because of what it's about and because of how confessional some of the writing is. Like I also just get a lot of notes from people who want to connect people who share really personal stuff from their own lives and kind of want to have a moment because they feel like I've shared something really personal from my life. And so a lot of what I've been thinking about in the past few weeks is just, you know, in a really logistical way, I can't go speak everywhere that I'm asked to speak. And I can't have a personal relationship with everybody who's been moved by the book. And I, you know, that there's, there are limits to human attention and there are limits to mortal time and all of that. And I think I've been, you know, it's almost like as a writer, I've, I've been so used to for so long saying yes to everything because I, that was well, you have how a, my work was going to make its way into the world. And now this idea of sort of refusal is right. It, it's hard to square in a way with the impulse of the book, even if logically I know, like, obviously you can't do everything. Say no, you know, it's, there's something about it that still feels like somehow with this book, I'm like offering up my heart, but then in real life, I have to close a lot of doors. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, and you have more options. I mean, you know, things, opportunities come. Yeah. There's a little, there's heat around the book, and people want to, you know, they want to invite you to do something. And I feel like, you know, I've seen this happen with writers who, you know, you're in this mode early in your career when you're trying to break through, and you say yes to everything because that's just what you do. You got to get your work out there, and and let's face it, you're not getting tons of offers, you know. So it's like when anybody says, right. "Hey, we want you to write an essay for us," or "Hey, we'll take this," it's a, it's great, you know, and. Right, um, right. But then, I, you know, now that you, you start to get kind of a foothold, um, you know, in publishing and you start to get a readership and you feel like there are maybe more eyes on what you're, what you're doing, do you feel uh, a greater sense of calculation or self-protection in terms of how you present yourself? Because, you know, I'm kind of, I'm a yaysayer too. And I'm also, I don't like, I don't like the idea of like image management or brand management. That makes me feel, that can make me feel icky, even though I know that that might be something I need to like work out. There's some, it's not necessarily a negative thing. Um, but do you know what I'm saying? Like, do you find yourself moving more cautiously about like who you blurb or like where you're published or which, which old blog posts of yours still live on the internet and things like that? <laughs> um, I, Yes. I mean, I guess I think about it less in terms of brand management and more in terms of, I mean, I'm going to say the phrase artistic integrity and just like own it in terms of what I, what I do. Like I don't want to write a bunch of puff pieces just because people will publish them and then have a lot of stuff out there that isn't what I think my best work can be. Um, because I think that really is a danger that faces writers once they get known and respected is that people are, you know, they want to have your name attached. And so they're 
soliciting from you and they're not discriminating that much. And so then you kind of have to be your own gatekeeper when in the past the world was being your gatekeeper. And so I think that's just a shift that I want to be aware of. Um, But it's not that I, yeah. Well, I was just going to say, it makes me think of the 850 word review for the Chronicle. Like not that that type of work, there's nothing wrong with that type of work, but I, I, I feel a similar sense of angst when it comes to just like putting posts up on the other people's site where it's like, I'm trying to do a weekly post, but I want them to be good. And I don't have enough time to like make them good. Right. And so it's right, like, then right, I can't, right. then, it, then you're like coming up against like, well, I feel like people are expecting it and you want to deliver on time, but then you don't want like all this like mediocre crap out there with your name on it. You know, it's like, right, 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 yeah, right, right. You know? And so it's like, I guess you just sort of have to be, you have to put a governor on yourself and just say, you know what? It's better to work at a, an appropriate pace and only put out stuff that I, I feel like has really been given its due, you know, in terms of time. Exactly. Yeah. But then, you know, it's funny because you know, I, I actually, I think there can be a place for the smaller project in a really cool way. I actually did write recently for the Chronicle an 850 word review of Blake Bailey's new memoir. Have you read it? The Splendid Things We Planned. Blake Bailey's new memoir. No, no. Splendid Things We Planned. I might've read your review. I mean, I've been reading about that book, so I haven't had a chance to pick it up. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a truly wonderful book. I mean, I became a fan of Blake's when I read his Charles Jackson biography, but I love this memoir. And I was so, uh, I was interested to see what a biographer, you know, he's famous for his biographies, but I was interested to see what it was like to witness a biographer writing something more personal. So, you know, basically when my editor at the Chronicle approached me about writing about that, I was like, ah, I really don't have time to write that review, but I was like, I'm going to do it because I think that, you know, having, it's important to kind of keep a polyculture too, I think at least for me as a writer so that I'm not just working on one kind of thing. And I think it can be nice to kind of also be a citizen, a literary citizen in the sense of absorbing work that other people are doing and responding to that work. And I felt so grateful, you know, like Philip Lopate reviewed my book for the San Francisco Chronicle and that was such an honor that he did that, you know, and that, you know, obviously Philip Lopate doesn't have to write little reviews for anyone, you know, but right. it was, it was, it was, it was such an important thing that he said yes to that and was willing to give his time and attention to reviewing the book in a public way. And so I think that it can be nice to make room for some of those other kinds of writing. Um, and it, and it's really a gift to, um, so writers when, you know, great minds are thinking about their stuff. Well, yeah. I mean, and, and I, you, I look at like, and do you have any sense of like the genealogy of how that happened? Did the San Francisco Chronicle reach out to him or did, is he friend? Cause uh, you know, uh, how do I put that? I, 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 think, that I, they, I, I think that they reached, I think that they reached out to him, but I'm not entirely sure how it happened. I'm always curious because, you know, you, I feel like when I, I'm trying to like uncover the mystery of how a book launches, you know, because I think so many people, Mm -hmm. so many people who try to write want to know that so many people listening to this show try to know that. And it's like, what's the domino? You know, was it like the Mary Carr blurb that got Philip Lopate's attention and then, or do they know each other? Did she pass the book to him or, you know, who knows? Um, I was just curious to know if like you somehow know, or if there's like any kind of like breadcrumb trail, you know? Uh, Yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, right. A secret breadcrumb trail from (laughs) Mary Carr's apartment in (laughs) downtown Manhattan to (laughs) across the East River to Philip Lopate in Brooklyn. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, I do think that one domino, I doubt this is 
how Philip Lokate got involved, but I do think one domino for this book was Twitter. And I think, you know, I just got on Twitter a um, little over a year ago, so I'm kind of a Twitter newbie, but I, I mean, Twitter is incredibly powerful, and I think it's incredibly, in terms of this ineffable thing that we call buzz around a book, I think Twitter is huge because Twitter just gives you this sense of if a book kind of catches on on Twitter, I think it does give you this really concrete proof of that nebulous feeling everybody's talking about this book. Because wow. it's like on Twitter, it's like, well, then you just see if a, if a book starts to catch hold, then you're seeing it on your feed all the time. And I think that it just it can kind of encapsulate that well and it's it's an easy way for people to share thoughts and respond to buzz and I mean I so I don't I don't know how you harness the power of Twitter but I do feel like it's this weirdly powerful it can be well in the literary world well yeah I was going to say especially in the literary and the journalistic world and just the media world broadly like that's you know Twitter's user base is I guess relatively small compared to like Facebook but the people who are on Twitter um can make taste they can be tastemakers right <laughs> uh, right collectively right, especially right. especially if you have the right bees buzzing you know uh, in your favor right like there are people who i think are really influential and then those can you know that can make dominoes fall i just i wish there was some like x-ray of this whole process that could we could just land on <laughs> like this is what has to happen people like this is who, this is who you need <laughs> uh-huh. well it's funny i do know one thing that was very gratifying to me is a friend of mine who's actually been a friend of mine and IRL in real life for a long time, but she's a, she's, she is a very active on Twitter and has a large following on Twitter and, um, is, she's just a great, she uses the tweet form in really interesting ways, but she is kind of famously doesn't like hashtags very much and she never uses hashtags and she like broke her on the, on the pub day for this book on April 1st, she broke her no hashtag rule to like flood Twitter with all these empathy exam hashtags. And it was like, it was such an honor. Like it felt like such a true and genuine gift to be like, I will consent to the form of the hashtag. What's wrong with that? Is this Roxane Gay? I'm just curious. No, it's oh, not. Okay. She's like, <laughs> um, she's tweeted, she's tweeted like 600,000 times. It's like, I'm amazed by her. She's constantly on that thing, but, um, I'm always at- yeah. She is very active on Twitter. Um, who? What? But who, uh, who? Why can't you say who it was? I mean, is it? Oh no, no, no! I can't. Her name's Casey Sepp. She's a and she's a, she's a wonderful writer in her own right. Actually, um, she writes a lot for the New Yorker blog. Um, and she writes she writes about spirituality and religion and books. And she's just got a great mind. Um, but it was a, it was a nice way of it was just an example of a kind of creative way that people can use the Twitter sphere to articulate enthusiasm, I right. think. Um, yeah. Okay. So, uh, I never, we haven't gotten to like you and like where you're from and how this all happened. Uh, I want to, I want to get at least a little bit of that. Like you are, sure, you're, from, yeah. you're, you're from LA, right? I am. Yeah. Originally I was born in Washington DC, but we moved, my family literally drove across the country when I was five. So I grew up in LA. Okay. Liked it. I did. I my relationship with LA is a little bit like family in the sense that I can be critical of LA sometimes, but I don't like it when other people are critical of LA. Um, 
I, yeah, I think I, you know, I had some restless discontent when I was in high school and because I was in high school in Los Angeles, that kind of got mapped onto, you know, I went to a high school that was very... Where'd you go to high school? With I went to Brentwood High School. Okay. Yeah, which is sort of full of entertainment industry kids. And my parents were both professors, so I felt I was, I felt like sort of of another alien breed. But I, once I left LA for college, I started to miss it and kind of, I don't know, kind of appreciate something about it. So whenever I go back to LA, it's a very emotionally charged place for me. And it definitely absolutely feels like the place I'm from. Like, I feel like it shaped me in these important ways. And, you know, driving down, like, sometimes I'll just drive when I go back. Like, there's, a, I can't remember which essay it is, but there's an essay where Gideon talks about just driving for the sake of driving all over Los Angeles. I love that essay when I read it. And I yeah. love her when she's like on the writing. T- she's on the 10. Or I think I remember that one. She drives in weird places for pleasure. Like, I'm like, I would never drive the 405 for pleasure. Right, right, right. <laughs> but, but, but I respect the impulse. Um, so but she's, I, she's um, driving it at midday. She's not, she's not rush hour. Yeah. Right? She's, like, she's, like a, a 405, though, I mean, you just, you can think you're safe. You're like, why would there possibly be traffic at yeah. 2 in the morning? There's but then no it's rules. Like the 405 is like, we've closed all five lanes. Yeah. So no, there's no rules. You, you, it, can, it can strike at any time. I've been through that. <laughs> Though I will say, I will say for anyone who wants to do something um, quasi-apocalyptic in Los Angeles, like if you're ever here on Christmas Day, get up at about 8 in the morning and drive out onto the freeways. It's magnificent. Uh, I I drove um, from Los Angeles to Orange County on Christmas Day years ago. It was the only time I've ever done that. And it was like, it was completely like Mad Max empty in a way that, you know, just totally threw me because it never is that way. And it was, it was wonderful. That sounds pretty magic. I had a similar, I went to get donuts for my family one time on Christmas morning and yeah, we were on the freeway and it was, it was that sense of like stepping out into the world after the filming had stopped or something like that, or like that moment in Vanilla Sky when it's just Tom Cruise in Times Square and nobody else. Right. Well, there's a, there's a, uh, like, you know, totally random aside, but there's a photo book by a guy. I want to say his name is Matt Logue, but it's a photo collection called Empty LA where he took all these photos of Los Angeles and then just like photo scrubbed out every sign of life. <laughs> Um, so it's like all these like totally iconic, huh. you know, shots of Los Angeles, places you've been and seen, but like there's no people. Um, huh. yeah. That's kind of fascinating. Yeah. It's called Empty LA. Empty LA. Yeah. My wife and I hmm. bought the book and then like had a couple of them removed and framed, which I don't know. Now that we have a kid, it feels a little creepy. <laughs> like, <laughs> put them up, put them up in the, put them up in the nursery, you know? <laughs> um, so, okay. So, but and you're uh, a brainy person like you went to harvard iowa writers workshop (laughs) yale like you're academically inclined and successful in that manner the daughter of professors i find that kids whose parents are professors often turn out to be um very bright which i I suppose makes sense (laughs) yeah well i do and actually yeah my older brother is was a professor as well so it definitely runs in the family yeah i had an embarrassing moment I was staying in a hotel room with one of my friends and I realized which different clothes I had like thrown in my suitcase that morning to sleep in. And I was like, I've got to apologize for what's about to happen. And I was wearing 
like Yale sweatpants and a Harvard uh. shirt. And I was just <laughs> like, this is really embarrassing for both of us. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I can say like, I've been so, I mean, I, this is an endless, could be an endless conversation. I've been so lucky and I've been lucky to have a family that was incredibly supportive of everything I've ever wanted to do. And I've been lucky about getting to, you know, write and think and talk in communities full of, you know, really intelligent, creative people. And um, I think that's part of a little bit part of why I'm kind of a school junkie is I just love, I love being part of those communities. I think it's a real honor. And um, yeah, so there's, there's, there's just a lot that's been good in those years and in those institutions. So, okay. And um, like any rough stuff in childhood? I mean, I know you said you were a little bit uh, like disaffected in high school, as I think we all are. Um, <laughs> but, you know, like you, and I know you, you address a lot of this in your own or in your book about like, you know, struggles that you've gone through. Like you, you mentioned that you were a cutter uh, for a brief time. Um, which I find really fascinating. I guess you probably do too. Um, but yeah. like, you know what I'm saying? Like, was there, was there ever a period where things could have veered off course or that things went dark enough that you were concerned? It's interesting. I'm actually reading right now, um, Michelle Hunneman's new novel, of course. Um, which is, I, do you know her work at all in no, that book? No. Uh-uh. Might, yeah. Be, it she could, is, be, could be sitting in here. I get sent so many books. I could, it could be here. I'll, yeah. She would be a great person for you, actually, to interview. She's she's um well, she lives in Altadena, but she's also just a very much like an LA, LA writer. Her books are set in LA, and she writes about the LA landscape in really interesting ways. But um, she has this novel, of course. It's it's, it's exploring the sense of what that phrase means, of course, like this kind of life that's going like it's supposed to, and then somehow something flips or like you lose traction and it goes in a different direction. Um, I, you know, and I think some of why I write about times in my life that were hard or things I've been through that were hard is a way to bring moments in my life that felt like beyond me a little bit or moments where I kind of lost control or felt vulnerable. But when I write about them, I make them, I make them part of, I make them part of me. I kind of claim them and I bring them back into the folds of my life. Um, well, and it's also, yeah. it's also, but I think when we write about pain that we've been through, um, it is a way of kind of releasing it. I, I, I found that, I mean, uh, you write about something and it's not that it totally leaves you, but it does, I don't know. It's a way of processing it. And then it also is a way of imposing a certain order on a situation that when it happened was totally disorderly. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of truth in that. Um, and I think, I do think it can, I guess I think pain acquires a certain force and and potency when it's, a, when it's a secret or when it's unvoiced or when it's kept inside. And I think some of that attaches to like shame and the kind of force that shame can carry or exert. Um, but I also think, a lot of things that are hard, you write about them and they're still hard or you write about them, but of course you've only written about part of the story. And, you know, I think about that when people ask about doing confessional writing, like, does it feel weird that strangers know about this part of your life? And, you know, yes, in a way it does, but at, at the same time, people 
only know the tiniest piece of the story if they've read an essay I've written about something. I mean, human experience is like really complicated and has a lot of layers and a lot of dimensions. And I think that you only really know the full version of another person's experience. I mean, you never know the full version, but like it's kind of knowledge is about coming circling back over and over and getting new bits and pieces each time. And that really happens in the context of, close relationships or therapeutic relationships. It doesn't happen just by reading the really aesthetically crafted version of personal experience that somebody's shown to you. So I always kind of think that like, you know, people who've read me writing about something hard, you know, they know what it, they know the tip of the iceberg, you know, they, or they know, they know, they know a sliver of the iceberg that I have carved for them to see. Um, and they don't know the rest. Um, and, then, and, and then, that feels, and that feels how, that just feels like an important distinction that I think a lot of people don't make. Yeah. Well, and then just like, and then there's the whole thing like that I run into. And I think, uh, anybody who does confessional writing probably contemplates at one point or another, but it's like, does the world really need to hear about my stuff? Does, yeah. you know, is this ridiculous that I'm even like putting this out there? Everyone, cause you know, you look at the internet, especially everyone's talking about their pain. I run the nervous breakdown and I would say that like at least one out of three essays that I read are grief essays. And mm-hmm, I feel mm-hmm. like an asshole being like, oh God, like somebody else died. Like I can sort of do an eye roll sometimes, <laughs> but this person, this person, this person's like pouring their heart out and it's like the hardest thing they've yeah. ever been through. And it's, you know, that's obviously not the right response, but how do you, like, how do you get through all that? Cause I, I mean, you know, like what's, what's like the, the thought process that's, that gets you to, it's okay for me to write about this. It, it's fine for me to claim my little piece of territory and tell my story. Um, even though there are, you know, an endless cacophony of voices telling similar stories. Right. I think that's a great question. I think for me, I mean, for me, part of it is understanding I make choices about what to write and people make choices about what to read. So I tell the stories that I have to tell and then, and and I have the right to tell those stories and people have the right to read them or they have the right to not read them. You know what I mean? But it's sort of like, I don't need to decide even if somebody doesn't want to read my story, that doesn't mean I shouldn't write it. You know? So I think it's sort of like you tell you, you, you say the shit you have to say and let other people worry about whether they want to read it or not. Um, yeah. I like and, that. Yeah. I mean, it really feels true to me. And I think part of, Part of the response that's been most meaningful to me, actually, especially around the final essay in the collection, has been hearing from young women who felt like their stories weren't worth telling or their stories didn't deserve to take up space. Stories about just fucking up and being drunk or sleeping with the wrong guy or all the kinds of female angst that I talk about having sort of become cliche or taboo or... Uh, a little bit. Well, yeah. Like I was like, I was, I was loving that what you were saying about like the, what was it? The post, uh, wounded. but yeah, post wounded, like, uh, you know, uh, mindset or whatever of women who were like, uh, it's like this hyper awareness and like this hyper self-consciousness and sort of gets back to what I was talking about of, you know, feeling weird about talking about your suffering when so many other people are talking about suffering and then taking on this posture of being sort of like over suffering, quote unquote, <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I feel like that really gets at something that a lot of us are experiencing and seeing in, you know, our day-to-day lives. 
Right. And I think, I mean, I, I guess I'm really an advocate for every story having value or there being some value in everybody telling their story. And then, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean everybody's story is going to be published in a book or something like that. But it, but, but of, of course they have the right to tell it, you know, or the right to, to try to share it. Um, so it's, it's ultimately a net good, I guess, is what I'm, I'm wondering, like all of this telling. Yeah. People got to express themselves. They got stuff on their chest. They need to unburden themselves. And if that's, if the telling makes them feel better, even if it's just, you know, a blog or a scrap of paper, then go for it. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are, I'm sure that there are cases and situations where somebody kind of compulsively telling their own story also has a detrimental effect. Like they're not, it, it, impedes their listening to other people's stories or it impedes them kind of moving towards resolution. I, you know, I think those effects are true too, but right. in general, yeah, I think I am a, I'm a supporter of telling and, and the scraps of paper and um, the, you know, random live journals from 1998 or <laughs> all the different forms it can take. So, sure. so okay. So you've, you've now written a novel, you've written this collection of essays um, do you prefer one mode to the next? Do you find yourself thinking like, wow, this is really going well with uh, the empathy exams. Maybe I should stick to nonfiction. Or are you now tired of nonfiction and need a break and want to go back into fiction? Well, I think uh, my my next project, I think, will be nonfiction. But it's it's less because it's less because the empathy exams is, has done well and more because it just feels like the next project that's in me to work on. But I would love to go back to fiction and I'm sure that I will someday. I can feel, I can feel the stirrings inside me and wanting, uh, wanting to return to it. And so I think I'm just going to let them keep stirring, percolating. Yeah. <laughs> for a little bit. And by the time, Maybe, I don't know, five years from now, 10 years from now, I'll be just so jazzed to write another novel. Well, that's the hope. Okay. And so what's this next project? Do you mind disclosing? <laughs> yeah. So the the project that I am thinking about and, and working on is a book-length study of addiction and recovery. So and particularly the kind of role that storytelling plays, how stories are told about addiction, how stories become a part of the recovery process. And in a way, it would be like one of the essays in the empathy exams, like bringing together memoir and cultural criticism and history and reportage, looking at my own story, looking at other people's stories, and, but also but happening over the scale of an entire book rather than an essay. And uh, it'll also draw a lot on the hope is, It'll draw a lot on my dissertation at Yale, which I've been working on now for almost four years, which is about uh, addiction and recovery. And so a lot of the, a lot of actually the research work has already happened. Um, but Wait, are you in recovery? I am. Yeah. You are, okay. So you have like personal experience and then you're also, I mean, four years at Yale writing a dissertation, it, that better yield a book. I mean, my God, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Or, or at least yield something. I had this, I had this moment when I was at the, I think it was the Natural History Museum in New York, and I saw these kind of crazy kind of Amazonian frog species that um, that uh, they the male frogs do this tricky thing where they'll fertilize one round of eggs and 
then they'll kind of convince another, a second female frog that they also want to have frog babies with her, but instead they'll use those eggs to fertilize the first round of eggs, um, which is so devious and (laughs) amazing to me. But I do kind of think about my dissertation a little bit in that sense. Like I'm extremely committed to it. I've been committed to it for a long time, but I think ultimately a lot of that material is going to get folded into a more hybrid kind of project. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's like great, it's like a great found like a research foundation at the very least, you know? And yeah, yeah, I think so. Wow. Well, that sounds exciting. And, uh, I have high hopes for it. I, I imagine it's going to be something to look out for when it finally comes to fruition. Uh, it's been really fun talking with you. Uh, it's been fun. I mean, I feel like, you know, I, you know, I think we met via email and the nervous breakdown years ago and, um, it always trips me out when somebody whose work I've loved and, um, published, you know, then goes on to like uh, publish a book that does as well as this is doing. And I just congratulate you on it. It's really exciting. Well, thank you. And I remember, I mean, I actually, well, I, those pieces that I wrote for the nervous breakdown back in the day are still important pieces to me. And I never would have written them if I wasn't writing them for you guys. So I feel grateful for those early moments of connection. And yeah, it was a pleasure to talk today. It was really wonderful. Okay, there you go. That's Leslie Jameson. Go get the empathy exams. It's out there now from Gray Wolf Press. You can find Leslie online at lesliejameson.com. She's also on the Twitter where her handle is at LS as in Sam Jameson. Uh, Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget to go get that app, the free official Other People app. It's the best way to listen to this program. Uh, It's available wherever apps are available. Uh, new episodes automatically upload to the app. So once you have the app on uh, your phone, for example, you don't have to do anything. The uh, new episodes just show up. Better yet, you can uh, access the full archives of the program. Every single episode, all 270-some-odd episodes, right there inside of the app. So you get the most recent 50 episodes for free, and then if you want to sign up for premium uh, to get the other couple hundred, it's 2 bucks a month, or 5 bucks for 6 months, or eight ninety nine. $8.99 for a full year of access. So if you want to sign up for premium, do that. You can hear me talk to authors like George Saunders, uh, Cheryl Strayed, Sam Lipsight, Tom Parada, Edwidge Dantica, Susan Orlean. Who else? It's a long list. Okay? So please do that. Go get the app. Sign up for premium. And uh, thank you for listening. And thanks especially to the people uh, who, who take time to write in. I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, don't worry. I'm going to rally. That's what I do. I'm a fighter. <laughs> and I, I truly, I don't give up easily. That's one thing about me. I'm actually not much of a fighter in the sense that, like, I don't like to fight. But if I'm doing something, even if I'm complaining about it, I won't give up. It's hard for me to do that. I will not quit. I'm like a, a dog with a bone or... Uh, for, for an even more explicit visual, I'm like a dog who won't stop uh, humping the leg of uh, our culture. Please remember that Andre Gide read the Aeonid. Is that how you pronounce that? The Aeonid? The Aeonid? Andre Gide read the Aeonid on his deathbed. Uh, and also remember that John Stuart Mill could barely tie a simple knot. That's it for now. Thanks to Leslie Jameson. Thanks to Gray Wolf Press. Go get the empathy exams. And uh, don't forget to have some empathy, generally, in your lives. Be empathetic. Don't overanalyze it. Just be, uh, 
be empathetic, just be kind. How's that? That's really the thing, isn't it? If you're confused, if your mind is a tangle, if you remember nothing else, just be kind. It's that simple. Is it that simple? (laughs) 